Welcome to the Radical Lifestyle Podcast, brought to you by Generation to Generation, where you will be inspired by the past, equipped for the present, and prepared for the future, as we engage in conversations with people from around the world. Hello everyone, this is Andrew and Daphne from Generation to Generation, and our guest today is Daniel Seckham. Now, uh, Daniel's been on before, but for people that don't know who you are, maybe they didn't hear the last episode or the last podcast that we did with you could you say a bit about where you're from and what you do right so my name is daniel seckham i'm the founder of israel islam and end times so it's a ministry that is to do with those three different things that looks at israel and the jewish people um and uh and looks at also islam and the muslim world and looks at the Middle East, especially with how Israel is um, um, is in the context of the Middle East. Uh, we also look at eschatology as well, the end times, and uh, and discuss how Israel and how Islam will factor into the end times. And so that's basically what my ministry is about. So I um, I guess I. Um, travel around the world speaking about different or those different things and about um um yeah just about where we are heading at the moment as well to help people have a bit of an understanding where we're at um in in this the times and the seasons um so yeah that gives a little bit of an um background with where i'm from i also have another ministry called culture war resource and cultural resources basically a ministry that that tries to inform and equip Christians in regard to the culture war to help them to understand the culture and to understand the political landscape in which we're living in at the moment. Mm-hmm. And we touch on su- subjects such as you know the whole threats to our freedoms. We talk about the left. We talk about about um, the whole cultural Marxism. We talk about even topics to do with the LGBT, the homosexuality and abortion and all those different things as to do with cultural war resource. So as you can see, I've got my hands full. It's certainly not boring for me at any sense. <laughs> it's, I'm certainly not going to die of boredom, that's for sure. <laughs> and then for people listening to this, uh, they, they like what they hear. They want to find out more. What are your websites? Where can they do that? Yeah, so I have a personal website, which is just danielsecom.com. Look, I don't really post there all that often. Um, mainly israelislamandentimes.com uh, and culturewarresource.com. But I'm mainly posting to the Facebook pages a lot. So the Israel Islam and End Times Facebook page and the Culture War Resource Facebook page, I, f- I post a lot too. So okay. that's, um, yeah, that's probably the best way that in which they can get in, in, okay, um, no. in contact. I'll put those links in the description box so people can go straight there and, and get to your pages. Well, I'm excited to hear what you have to say, Daniel. Said, <clears throat> excuse me, that you're where are we at, what's going on, where are we heading, um, especially in relation to Islam, the West. Can you unpack it for us? Because we're excited I'll, to hear. I will indeed. So I want to share with you my screen. So my talk is the West, Islam, and the last days. The West, Islam, and the last days. And I want to begin by talking about the West. Because uh, not, 
many people really have a handle on on what makes up the West. How did the West become the West and, and, and what is the foundation of the West? Well, sociologist of religion, Rodney Stark said this. He said, the Christian concept of God held the key to the rise of the West. Now, historian Tom Holland said, most people are oblivious to the way in which the West's Christian heritage has shaped modern education, healthcare, music, art, literature, and the scientific revolution, to name but a few. He also said this. He said, if Western civilization is the fishbowl, then the water is Christianity. Isn't that interesting? He said, if Western civilization is the fishbowl, then the water is Christianity. But what has happened? The West is certainly not Christian as we would as we would look at the West today. That's because over the past three centuries, we have witnessed the gradual decline of Christianity, first in Europe, but only to accelerate through the West over the past, I guess you could say, 70 years. There's been a, a very big uh, acceleration of that apostasy. Um, so in apostasy now, is having a huge impact upon the United States, which is the, um, the final bastion of Christianity or the final bastion of Western civilization. So this is an unfortunate consequence of a society um, that, of, that rejects Christianity. When man no longer seeks meaning and purpose through religion, he seeks meaning and purpose through politics. Wow. I'll, I'll say that again. Mm. When man no longer seeks meaning and purpose through religion, he seeks meaning and purpose through politics. If he no longer see is able to impact the world through the gospel, then he wants to impact the world through other means. Now, the left have an obsession with big government. And Francis Schaeffer sums it up this way. He says the humanist worldview with inevitable certainty leads in the direction of statism. This is so because humanists, having no God, must have something at the center. And it is inevitably society, government, or the state. Society, government, or the state. So government rushes in to fill the void that is left by God. And according to Pew Research from last year, atheists are 700% more likely to favour big government, Democrat or the, as in the, the UK Labour Party. Here in Australia, it's also the Labour Party or the Greens. Atheists are 700% more likely to favour big government, in other words, left-wing political ideology over small government, conservatism, which is very, very interesting. Now, Richard John Neilhouse says, socialism is the religion people get when they lose their religion. Let me re repeat that. He said, socialism 
is the religion people get when they lose their religion. Interesting. So apostasy inevitably leads to leftism. Now, Ali, conservative commentator Ali Stuckey said this. She said, in my experience, as a Christian moves to the left politically, they begin to take the Bible less seriously. I've never seen someone become more liberal socially, politically, while becoming more solid theologically. She says, biblical inerrancy seems to give way to cultural relevance. Isn't that fascinating? Uh Yeah. So the left's divine ambition. So as a result of rejecting God and Christianity, they become more utopian. They become more idealistic in the idea that they can um, they can bring about their utopia upon the earth. Now, Fyodor Dostoevsky says, socialism is the Tower of Babel built without God, not to mount to heaven from earth, but to set up heaven on earth. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. He said, socialism is the Tower of Babel built without God, not to mount to heaven from the earth, but to set up heaven on earth. This is why they become so utopian. This is why they see themselves as becoming like mini gods, because they believe that they can usher in heaven on earth. And uh, this is why they eat, sleep, and breathe politics. It becomes their religion. They become so uh, passionate about this because they are absolutely convinced that they can set up heaven on earth. So as government becomes, so government becomes God, and therefore the bigger the government can get, the better. And so the number one enemy of this vision is Christianity and capitalism. Well, really, Christianity is the foundation on which capitalism is built. Now, Karl Marx said this. He said, my object in life is to dethrone God and to destroy capitalism. He said, my object in life is to dethrone God and to destroy Capitalism. He also wrote in a letter to his father, he said that new gods will have to be installed. So Karl Marx's vision, um, as he laid out in the Communist Manifesto, he believed that there would be an inevitable military confrontation between communist nations and capitalist Christian Western nations. And many thought that Marx's vision failed with the symbolic fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. However, there are two schools of thought in regard to Marxism. And this is where we we, we talk about this, this other communist. So Marxism never went away with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the demise of the Soviet Union, but rather it changed its tactics to infiltration and subversion. And this was a plan originating from an Italian communist named Antonio Gramsci. And he lived in the 1920s. 
So Gramsci differed with Marx's tactic of confronting the West via military means. Instead, he opted for an incremental approach of infiltrating the West's cultural and political spheres of influence. Gramsci is perhaps the most influential figure behind the West's cultural right and social decay. 80 years after Gramsci's death and his strategy of the long march through the institutions has borne remarkable fruit and not in a good way. Another really interesting point about Gramsci was how he differed with Marx in their strategy to destroy the church. Marx believed that the church should be confronted through brute physical force with shutting down churches and imprisoning Christians. Gramsci, on the other hand, believed that churches themselves could be infiltrated and used as an effective tool against Christianity itself and consequently Western society as a result. Hmm. And and boy, haven't we seen that today? Haven't we seen that in many, many churches these days where there is no longer a focus on revealed Christianity, on revelation, but rather on social Christianity the focus on uh, churches that are, have placed an emphasis on social justice, on, uh, on churches that place an emphasis on, um, on, on left-wing ideology as a result. And it's quite, quite tragic. Yeah. So the left in their new morality. So Western society is slowly transitioning from a Christian nation or from a Christian society to a post-Christian society. And along with that means the old morality, the biblical morality, needs to be replaced with the new morality, which is called political correctness. And this is what's really important to understand because this is what political correctness essentially is, is the new morality. And to explain it a little bit better, Political correctness is the new moral code for a society that has rejected God. Political correctness is the new moral code for a people that have rejected God. This is why when you see, you know, um, many of these leftist activists, and particularly when you watch, um, I, I never watched them, but it, at the Academy Awards and when they come forward and they accept their award, they give this speech and they basically are are preaching um, their doctrine of political correctness. And this is what you need to be like. And this is what we need to aspire to. And, and it's just blah, blah, blah. It's basically a sermon based on political correctness. It's also known as a virtue signaling. Now, within political correctness, the central plank of political correctness is equality. That's really, really important. See, with us on the right, us conservatives, with us who have the Christian worldview, we place more emphasis on freedom. We want freedom for people. We want people to live in freedom. Whereas with the left, their emphasis is on equality. So... To the leftist, there you you often hear the crash, this catch cry that all cultures are equal. The left believe that everything will be fair and just 
when everyone is made equal. And as one of the chief catch cries is, all cultures are equal. To the left, Christianity is deemed oppressive and is a tall poppy within Western society. Therefore, the answer is to propagate and to lift up Islam. To propagate and to lift up Islam. Now, as you can imagine, this is a fatal attraction. And as a result of government filling the vacuum of man's vacant heart where God used to be, Islam fills the vacuum of a vacant society. Okay. And in many nations where Christianity has vacated, Islam has moved in. In England, for every church closing down, four mosques are opening. Now, I know that this statistic is probably about five years old, and I'm not sure if it's if that's still relevant, but that is most often the case. There are many examples where churches closing down and mosques, they have reopened as, as mosques, which I believe is quite tragic. Now, I want to show you this image. Now, this image is, is, is not painting all Muslims like this, neither is it painting all Westerners like this. But this is a broad brush assessment of where the West is right now. So you have Islam here on the left and then you have the West here on the right. Now, a better way of describing it is if I show these two words in the bottom uh, left-hand corner, right-hand corner. And, and for people um, listening to audio, the, the Muslim ladies in the full burqa with just the eyes uncovered and yep. the other person is wearing a blindfold. Yes, yes. It, it's kind of like ju juxtaposed. So where is the, the slit of the, la of the lady wearing the, uh, the hijab um, or probably better described as the burqa, whereas the, the material that would be that was cut out, it's actually used as a blindfold on the woman who was just juxtaposed directly next to her. Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to say is this is a broad brush assessment from where the West is right now. See, in the East, if you go to a Muslim country in the East, Islam is Islam, and you will see Islam for what it is. And this is why when many Westerners actually travel and go to um, Muslim countries, they are shocked when they actually see the reality of Islam. And many Westerners refuse to believe uh, that. They don't want to have a, 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 a... They don't want to believe that Islam is Islam, especially when it's represented from countries in the Middle East. In the West, and as you can see with this woman with this blindfold, she's completely blinded, com completely blinded to the reality of Islam. Uh, in fact, um, they have this concept of Islam that's kind of like a Disneyland version of Islam. Like, they, like Muhammad is like a champion of women's rights. Um, Islam is, is the religion of equality and, and Islam is all these things that they, uh, they believe about Islam, which is completely false. They, they believe that Islam is a religion of peace and such and such. 
but it's simply not true. So why is the West so blind to Islam? Well, the West is crippled and deceived, but what I believe is, well, what we are seeing at the moment is what I would can only describe as a great delusion. And it could very well be that of the great delusion that Paul spoke of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. Left-wing political correctness, or technically speaking, progressive liberalism. The left and Islam work together in their efforts to wreak havoc upon the West. But it begs the question, but aren't they strange bedfellows? What commonality do they have with each other? Aren't they diametrically opposed? And the answer to that was when you look closer, the answer is no. There are incredible parallels between the two. Let's have a look at some of them. Number one, both are utopian. So we spoke earlier about the lefts being utopian. They want to build heaven upon the earth. They want to, uh, they want to, um, to build about this, this incredible heavenly utopia. Now, Islam wants to do the same thing. They want to usher in this utopia, but they want to do it when, when um, by bringing the entire world under a global caliphate, under a caliph, a global caliph. That's, when, that's what they believe. They are both utopian. Both are totalitarian in nature. Now, um, Lenin said that socialism um, inevitably leads to communism he said socialism is basically he said the next step to communism uh to within within islam same thing uh, islam especially if you go to muslim countries you'll notice that it is under each of these muslim countries are under totalitarian rule uh they they do not have freedom like we have here in the west Three, both appeal to the victim mentality. So within the left, this is why the left is what they are. I mean, they embrace what's better known as cultural Marxism. Now, for Marxism, <clears throat> for Marxism to flourish, they have to have victims. This is why they have, see, many of the, the, the minority groups such as the LGBT, Blacks, uh, even women, uh, this is why feminism is the big thing to the left, because they want to pit women against men. They want the women to hate the men. Uh, and the same thing with the whole, um, many of the other uh, minority groups. Now, Islam presents itself as victims as well. Uh, they, in fact, they present themselves as victims, especially in Western countries. They say, well, we're the victims and we're the one who are disadvantaged. We're a minority group and, you know, and so, again, they have this victim mentality. Um, four, both oppose freedom of speech and share the ideal that their belief system cannot be challenged, cannot be challenged. This is what we see with the left. You cannot challenge political correctness. It will steamroll you. This is what is at the heart of cancel culture, okay? At the heart of cancel culture, you know, you have to, go by their way or it's the highway. Uh, you know, if you don't go along with a certain belief, then your business can be shut down. 
you can lose your job. Okay. This is the, it's just in, in, incredibly, I guess, with what we were talking earlier about totalitarian. But the same within Islam. You cannot, you do not have freedom of speech within Islam. If you sh show any sign of dissent or any sign of deviating away from the Sunnah of Muhammad, then there will be consequences. Um, uh, five, both have no problem in using violence to achieve their objectives. As we have seen with the left, in fact, Karl Marx himself said that nothing in history has ever been achieved without violence. He said nothing in history has ever been achieved without violence. Lenin also shared very similar statements. Um, um, Muhammad, again, the same thing uh, in regard to Islam. When you look at the history of Islam, for the past 1,400 years, they have subjugated nations at the point of the sword. That is just, just a fact. Then we have, uh, here we have both used lies and deception to achieve their greater goal. Now, the left do this. They have no problem with lies and deception if it um, achieves their, their greater goal. In fact, David Horowitz, who actually used to be a communist, but now he's actually an outspoken conservative activist, he wrote a book called um, the, the Black Book of the American Left. And he says this, he says something that's very interesting. He says, if you believed that healthcare for all was just around the corner, that um, a basic income for all was around the corner, if, if utopia was just around the corner, you know, then what lie would you not tell and what law would you not break to bring that into reality? I just thought, yeah. wow, isn't that mm. incredible? Now, remember, leftists embrace a worldview that is devoid of God. They themselves become gods, right? So let me just repeat what he said again. He said, if you knew that utopia is just around the corner, then what lie would you not tell and what law would you not break to bring that into reality? Interesting. Now, again, Islam, same thing. They have taqiyah, which is Arabic for basically Islamic sanctioned deception. In other words, you can lie in Islam for the purpose that it advances the goals of Islam. If it advances the agenda of Islam, then it's permissible to lie, to deceive the kufa, to deceive the, the, uh, the infidel, the non-Muslim. Next, both employ historical revisionism. The left are trying to twist history. This is why they're tearing down statues all over the West. In England, in America, here in Australia, they're trying to paint Captain Cook, who was our discoverer of Australia. They're trying to paint him as a racist. They're trying to uh, reframe our um, Australia Day, which is the day in which Captain Cook landed, made landfall upon Australia. They're trying to say that that is an invasion day, that, that, that Australia was invaded when Captain Cook came. Of course, that's all nonsense, but this is the, the historical revisionism. This is exactly what Islam does as well. They try and paint Islam as a glorious religion. They, they talk about the golden age of Baghdad, 
right? The golden age of where scientific breakthroughs all came out of Islam and, and Islam is so wonderful and Islam does, has done so many wonderful things for the world. Again, this is all historical revisionism. Next, both are walking towards a future revolution. The leftists want their socialist revolution. Islam, they want the, the global caliphate. They want the world to come into a time of when the world comes under one caliphate, under one caliph. Next, both, both use civil liberty to destroy civil liberty. They use our freedoms, such as freedom of speech, to destroy freedom of speech. Next, both are vying for a majority to outnumber Christians. So we know that within Islam, they have no problem to outbreed uh, um, um, Westerners. That's what we see in, in many Western countries today. You'll notice that the birth rate among Muslim communities is much, much, much higher than the, um, than the ind indigenous po population. So this is their strategy, and it's worked right over time. In fact, we'll discuss that more as we get, get to it. Now, with the left, it's different. They can't do that without breeding. They don't do that. Uh, in fact, many of them don't even get married. Um, they don't even see the whole family thing as, as, a, 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 as, a, as a thing that's acceptable to them. What they do do, though, they have captured all the majority of the universities, especially the major universities across the West. And so what they do is that they indoctrinate. And so this is why many impressionable young people go to these universities who are originally conservative, but after four, three to four years of indoctrination from these Marxist professors, they leave completely indoctrinated and brainwashed into the ideology of the left. In fact, Dinesh DeSalza said, he said this, he said, there are more Marxists on the faculties of our elite colleges than there are in all of Russia and Eastern Europe. Wow. Isn't that sobering? Yeah. He said there are more Marxists on the faculties of our elite colleges than there are in all of Russia and Eastern Europe. And in fact, uh, I remember David Horowitz also said something very, very similar, but it's the truth. And this is why we are losing so many of our young people to the other, other side through our universities and our colleges and our other um, in. Uh, in, in, uh, educational institutions uh, and this is how they do it this is how they they do that and lastly and this is really what sums up wh why they see each other as allies see both see christianity as their primary enemy hence and here is the the motto here is the slogan that binds them together hence the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That is the thing that binds the left and Islam together. Mm. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Can so I just interject something? Yes. Can I, can I just interject something there? Just one minute, Daniel. Yes. Um, Throwing in a generation-to-generation generation perspective here, it seems yes. to me that they have caught God's biblical principles and they are using them and 
they're being effective because they're God's principles. In other words, they right. are taking the next generation. They are taking That's it right. through their families. They, they're taking yep. it. And they are taking it by focusing on the university students. And yep. I think shame on the church that the that, that is the, often the weakest area. And we're seeing the yes. results of them jumping in and using God's principles and getting the results that God said that you would get if you do it yeah. his way. So sorry yeah. to interrupt, mm -hmm. but I just couldn't let that moment pass by yeah. because... This is, yeah. this is yeah. one of the things we talk about in our conferences yeah. is that we say to turn a nation, you must take the next generation. And we say that yes. other religions and, other, and uh, political systems know these principles. And we often say about how if you go to persecuted countries, you're allowed to give the gospel to older people, but you're not allowed to give it to younger people. And we say, why? That's right. Because the political system knows that if you can take that next generation, you can take the nation. Mm. And so you are unpacking a lot of that about how these religions or political systems have put an emphasis yeah. on reaching the next generation. Now, thank you for letting us throw that in. Yeah. <laughs> You no, you're absolutely correct, and this is what the left understand. See, they are in it for the long game, right? Now, even Vladimir Lenin said this. Vladimir Lenin said, "Give me four years with the children, and the seeds that I have sown shall never be uprooted." Mm. And that's exactly what God says: train up yeah. a child in the way he will go, and when he was old, he will not depart yeah. from it. I mean, yeah. This is shocking. I mean, it just is yeah. shocking that yeah. somehow political systems and other religions can understand the ways of God and the church yes. keeps it as its most weakest, um, the weakest point in the majority of churches. Mm. So don't let's stop you moving on. But that was just pressing too many buttons for it not, to, <laughs> not just to pass us by. Yeah. Yeah, no problem at all. No problem at all. So now I want to shift gears and I want to focus now specifically on Islam. Right. right. So here's a short history on Islamic conquest. So since Mahavada arrived on the scene in 609 AD, he and his followers have waged continual jihad, subjugating nations by the point of the sword for the past 1400 years. Now, this continual jihad hasn't had a pause either neither has islam had a reformation in which spreading by islam by violent force was replaced by spreading islam by peaceful means muhammad has made it very clear that war against the infidel nations will not stop not until the end of the age so now i'm going to read you an excerpt from the seerah so the seerah is the biography of muhammad so this particular one is The Life of Muhammad by Sir William Muir. So in Sirah 448, it says this, After all the victories, some Muslims said that the days of fighting were over and even began to sell their arms. But Muhammad forbade this, saying, There shall not cease from the midst of my people a party engaged in fighting for the truth until the Antichrist appears. Now, by the way, where it says Antichrist there, in Arabic, that means Dajjal, the Dajjal. In other words, within Islam, they have this expectation of a so-called Antichrist figure. In other words, a anti-Mati figure, someone who will oppose the Mati, which is their anticipated Messiah figure. 
So the Middle East, Northern Africa, and parts of Asia were all subjugated through military confrontation. So much of the Middle East used to be Christian, including the Northern Africa, okay, including like Egypt and Libya and uh, Tunisia uh, and, uh, and, and Morocco. They were all Christian nations. Uh, and even the parts of, if you go into Asia Minor, you know that, um, that uh, Afghanistan used to be um, Buddhist. Um, you know that Iran used to be Christian and Zoroastrian. Um, and again, this, this, the same as we move down into Asia, they, Islam subjugates and conquers the existing cultures and existing relig religions. So all was subjugated through military confrontation. So Islam's initial tactic of military confrontation with the West came to a grinding halt at the gates of Vienna in 1683. Had the Muslim armies prevailed, they stood to overrun Christian Europe and the entire continent would have become part of the Muslim Ottoman Empire. In order to conquer Europe and the West, Islam would need a change of tactic. However, the emergence of the Muslim Brotherhood under the leadership of Hassan al-Banna in 1922 would breathe new life into the ambitions of Islam to dominate the West. And this is what we're talking about, the birth of cultural jihad. Now, you might remember earlier, we discussed cultural Marxism and how Antonio Gramsci was the brainchild behind cultural Marxism because Gramsci was all about infiltrating the West through their, their cultural institutions. Well, this is pretty much the same thing, the same strategy of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, uh, um, and this is what Hassan al-Banna introduced in 1922. Now, acknowledging their inability to confront the West via military means, they sought a change of strategy which would prove to be nothing short of brilliant. The Muslim Brotherhood laid out a plan of infiltrating the West from within via what can be described as cultural jihad. So what is the goal of the Muslim Brotherhood? Well, Muhammad Mahdi Akef, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, said, he said, I have complete, sorry, he's not the founder. I should say that he was one of the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood. He said, I have complete faith that Islam will invade Europe and America because Islam has logic and a mission. The jihad will lead to smashing Western civilization and replacing it with Islam, which will dominate the world. Wow, pretty sobering. Mm. So let's have a look at the Muslim Brotherhood's goals for North America. So in an official document uncovered by federal investigators in 2004, the Muslim Brotherhood's strategic goals for North America was chillingly outlined from a meeting held by the organization in 1991. And here is a short excerpt. It says, the process of settlement is a civilization jihadist process with all the word means. The Ikhwan, which is Arabic for Muslim Brotherhood, 
must understand that their work in America is a kind of grand jihad in eliminating and destroying the Western civilization from within and sabotaging its miserable house by their hands and the hands of the believers. Wow. So their plan is a grassroots approach in slowly infiltrating Western society by undermining its institutions and cultural centers of influence and using the West's liberal ideals such as freedom of speech, tolerance, inclusivity against itself. Okay. Remember we talked earlier about how they use civil liberty to destroy civil liberty. This is exactly their strategy. Mm. And two decades later, their success has been unprecedented. And so the West therefore faces an ominous future. What was once a shining example of Christian civilization, which brought individual liberty and freedom of speech and freedom of religion and, and inquiry to the masses, has been gradually seduced to a proverbial prostitute riding an Islamic beast. Hmm. Let me repeat that. What was once a shining example of Christian civilization, which brought individual liberty, freedom of speech, and freedom of religion and inquiry to the masses, has been gradually seduced to a proverbial prostitute riding an Islamic beast. Now, the inebriated prostitute rides the beast in a show of defiance and overweening pride, arrogantly preaching its doctrine of multiculturalism and equality while being completely delusional that the beast that she is riding on will inevitably turn on her and kill her. Now, of course, you know that I'm making a bit of a reference to Revelation chapter 17. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a very, very strong correlation here. Let me read to you Revelation 17 and verse 16. It says that the beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. So, the joyous honeymoon of the left's marriage with Islam will soon subside and will slowly but surely bring her to her ruin and inevitably burn her with fire. So, of course, the left is completely oblivious to all this. Remember that picture, those two pictures are showed side by side with, with the east on the left and the west on the right. The woman is completely blindfolded. She's completely oblivious. They live in a state of what I describe as political correctness paralysis. Political correctness paralysis and are incapable of seeing the danger of the beast that they are riding on. Islam, on the other hand, are infinitely patient with their strategy. Their recipe of cultural jihad has been tried and tested, and one needs to look no further than their success with other countries 
which have capitulated to Islam. So let's have a look, first of all, at Iran. So before the 1979 Iranian Revolution, Iran was very liberal democracy that emphasized tolerance and multiculturalism. In fact, if you were to go to Google Images and Google um, Iran before, or you say Persia before the Iranian Revolution, you will see that that the people living in Iran would it was like it's like you were you were looking at the 1960s within a Western country. You would think that you you know the the women wore the the short skirts with the um, the the 60s hairdo. It, it was really incredible when you look at the contrast. So before the 1979 Iranian Revolution, Iran was very a liberal democracy. They emphasized tolerance and multiculturalism. The left-wing Tudor party, which was proudly Marxist in its political leanings, openly embraced Muslim immigrants and encouraged Islam to flourish in the spirit of cultural diversity. Now, inevitably, Ayatollah Khomeini swept to power in the 1979 Iranian revolution in an environment made possible by years of left-wing liberal policies. In 1982, the Islamist government of Iran had closed down the Tudor newspaper and purged Tudor members from government ministries. Quite quickly, the government arrested and imprisoned its leadership and later more than 10,000 members of the party. During February in 1983, the leaders of the Tudor party were arrested and the party disbanded, leaving Iran effectively a one-party state. So from the 1st of May 1983 to May 1984, almost all the Tudor leadership appeared in videos in October 1983, roundtable discussion, confessing to treason, subversion, horrendous crimes, praising Islam, and proclaiming Islamic government superiority over atheistic Marxism-Leninism. So what you're seeing here is a textbook example of the Stockholm Syndrome. Have huh. you, are you guys familiar with the Stockholm Syndrome? Yeah. yeah. Yes. This is exactly what actually happened um, in May 1983 to May 1984, Many of these former members from the Tudor leadership appeared in videos basically um, speaking glowingly of their Islamic captors. Uh, they were confessing to their own crimes. They were praising Islam and proclaiming Islamic government superiority over the atheistic Marxism-Leninism. So as a result of these purges, yes. Mike, for people listening who don't know what the Stockholm Syndrome is, just tell them yes so the stockholm syndrome is it, it actually um goes way back to the 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 uh, there was a, a kidnapping in stockholm of islamic terrorists who basically ca uh, captured these people and at the during the captivity the cap the captives began to speak in terms of affection of their captors they used to say, well, you know, I was misled and now captors are absolutely right, uh, you know. And, and a lot of this has to do with the fear 
the fear that they have that if they speak against them that they'll be punished. So they 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 speak in favorable terms of their captors, and that's what the Stockholm that basically sums up what the Stockholm syndrome is. And we have seen it from time to time throughout many periods throughout modern history where people who are captured or people who are kidnapped, they speak favorably of their captors. That's what the Stockholm syndrome means. Right, thank you. So as a result of these purges, the party gradually collapsed. And with a third of the members going into exile, they fled the country. A third were imprisoned and a third were executed. Interesting. Now, very, very similar to what happened in Lebanon. Lebanon used to be known as the Paris of the Middle East and the banking capital of the Middle East. It was the only Christian majority country in the Middle East. Yet Lebanon changed when they became more liberal and more left-leaning. And from the beginning of the 20th century, scores of Muslim Palestinian refugees immigrated to Lebanon. And by the 1970s, the once burgeoning Christian majority became a tiny minority. Same with Egypt. Egypt was a Christian country, but it became tolerant, multicultural, and a liberal democracy. Syria was the home of numerous Christian communities that have been in existence for thousands of years. Yet again, Islam crept in. Turkey was a democracy which embraced liberal ideas for decades, yet today, Turkish President Recep Erdogan has turned it into an Islamic Republic. I mean, you saw what uh, he has done with the uh, Sophia Hagia or Hagia Sophia, um, which was the um, the church which they, he is turning into a mosque, the historic church that he is turning into a mosque. And so he has this dream of reviving the Islamic Ottoman Empire with himself as caliph. Now, I'm not saying that he will be the global caliph, you know, uh, or so inferring that he will be the so-called antichrist. I'm not saying that at all. But he does have grand ambitions where he wants to revive the old Islamic Ottoman Empire with himself as a caliph. And that will mean for him to... He would have to eventually conquer Israel because at that time, Israel was actually part of the Ottoman Empire. Now, I want to show you some graphs. On the left, you can see the growth of Islam within Turkey. And on the right, you can see the growth of Islam within Lebanon. And you can see the percent on the left. And on the bottom part of the graph, you can see the date. And you can see the trajectory in which Islam grows. And let me show you the next one. You can see here on the left with the growth of Islam within Kosovo. And on the right, you can see the growth of Islam within Bangladesh. So, and on here, you can also see the growth of Islam within Pakistan. So once it starts, it never reverses. Islam never retreats. Well, actually, there is a, there actually is a, I, um, an exception. And we'll, I'll talk about that at the end when we talk about some of the good news that's happening with all this. But slowly, year by year, century by century, the native Kafir, the native infidel, the non-Muslim civilization vanishes and is never able to fight back, never reverses Islam's gains. Now, highly respected scholar and researcher of Islam, 
Dr. Bill Warner. He's a brilliant man. In fact, I've been blessed to conduct three interviews with this man. I've met him in person twice. Uh, he said this. He said, I'm an admirer of Islamic civilizational war methods. They're superior to everyone else's thinking in war. They use everything for war, everything, including the womb, he says. Hmm. So again, Islam uses the West's liberal ideals against itself in very much the same fashion as Joseph Stalin once remarked, when we hang the capitalists, they will sell us the rope. The left naively thinks that the Islamists will join them in destroying Christian culture and then joyfully join them in their multicultural utopia. But will it work out that way? No. <laughs> As we have seen with Lebanon and Iran, the left will be the first to go. The most sobering part in all of this is that this principle happened regionally in certain epochs of time. And yet what we are now witnessing this happening now on a global scale, you know, that, you know, we have turned into this global village. Everything has become much more globalized and, and things are happening on the world scale as a whole. And the West is ripe for God's judgment. And God is using Islam to do it. So let's talk a little bit about that, the prophet Habakkuk. So Habakkuk complains to God that he isn't doing anything about the injustice that he sees going on in Judea and in particularly the city of Jerusalem. Right, So he complains to God. He says, God, the people of Jerusalem, they are wicked. They take advantage of the, the widow and the orphan. They are immoral. And he says, and God, you're not doing anything about it. But God says to Habakkuk that he is doing something about it. But that's not what he expects. God says that he is raising up the Babylonians. <laughs> and you can just imagine Habakkuk when God said, the Babylonians, because you, mm. you can imagine him quivering. He'd be like the, 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 the Babylonians. And he's like, Lord, you surely you wouldn't do that. They have a, they are infamous. They are notorious. They have a notorious reputation. They have a scorched earth policy. They, they destroy everything they touch. Surely Lord, you wouldn't do that. It's so funny because he goes from accusing God of too, doing too little to accusing God of doing too much. Mm. So funny. So I want to read to you in Habakkuk chapter one from verse five. It says this, God says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are, they are a feared and dreaded people, and they are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And in the same way, God raised up foreign enemies to contend with Israel when they turned their backs on God. He has also raised up Islam to contend 
with the so-called Christian Western nations who have turned their back on God. Three times God refers to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar as his servant. And you can see that in Jeremiah 25 verse 8, 27 verse 5, and 43 verse 9. God says, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. Fascinating. And the more the West kicks God out of its midst, you can be sure that Islam will fill the void. In fact, I would even say that the more left wing, the more left wing and the more liberal a nation becomes, the more Islam will grow within that nation like an aggressive cancer. And this is what we've seen happening with Sweden. I remember in the 1970s, Sweden boasted that they were the humanitarian powerhouse of the world. And now look what has happened to Sweden, where there are over 50 no-go zones within the Swedish capital of Stockholm. Oh, sorry, the Swedish capital, yes, of Stockholm. I just think it's just so incredible uh, from what has happened to them. So if we have learned anything about God's method of judgment, he has always judges nations and individuals in degree of severity based on their revelation and understanding of the truth. For example, in Luke 12, chapter 47 to 48, Jesus says, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. And so, as the nation of Israel was judged harshly by God because they should have known better for knowing the truth. And this is when you see in Romans chapter three, verse two, which says, Paul says, is there any advantage in being a Jew? And he says, and much, much in every way for they carry the very words of God. Some other translations say for they are the custodians of the oracles of God. So the nations will be judged so much more harshly if they were privileged to be raised on a foundation of Christianity and therefore should have known better. It's the same principle. Remember what Jesus said. Remember when Jesus said the woes. Remember when he said, uh, woe to you, Capernaum. You know, if the miracles that were performed in you were performed in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented years ago. They would have repented. It would have been, and he said, there would be more bearable for, for, for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for you. Why? Because they had Jesus in their midst. Mm. So let's look about now. Let's turn to America. Those who think that America is strong enough to withstand the onslaught of the left and Islam, I believe are sadly deluded. The sins of America are piled up to heaven. 60 million abortions since Roe versus Wade. The promotion, celebration, and the global export of homosexuality. And also, I should also argue the transgender movement. And then we have the tsunami of pornography. Pornography, including child pornography, is getting darker and darker and more extreme. In fact, now you might remember the controversy with Netflix, how Netflix 
is showing that movie called Cuties, which sexualizes these 11-year-old girls, and they are championing it. It's just absolutely incredible. And then you have the destruction of gender from marriage and from society. It's just absolutely crazy how you can now lose your job if you say that men, that biological men are men and biological women are women. We are living in days of absolute craziness. So Thomas Jefferson said this. He said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. Billy Graham said, if God were to excuse America for her sin, he would have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Hmm. Franklin Graham, who was the son of Billy Graham, said, as a nation, we've become more, we've become desensitized to the value of human life. That's also evidenced in the 60 million children whose lives have been ended through abortion in this country since 1973. He says, my prayer is that America will wake up before it's too late. God's judgment is coming. Now, on another aspect of that, I shudder at the thought of America losing her role as global leader. And America was blessed by God because of her righteousness and Christian heritage. And as such, she has been a great, great blessing to the world, an incredible blessing to the world. In fact, I want to quickly read to you a quote from Alexis de Tocqueville, and he wrote in his book, um, Democracy in America. And he said this, he said, I sought for the key to the greatness and genius of America in her harbors, in her fertile fields and boundless forests, in her rich mines and vast world commerce, in her public school system, in institutions of learning. I sought for it in her democratic Congress, in her matchless constitution. But listen to what he says next. But not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and her power. Wow. Mm. wow. As Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34 says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. In fact, Alexis de Cockville also says, America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. And we're living in this time of Pax Americana. Now, let me help you to understand that because that Pax Americana comes from the other term known as Pax Romana. Pax Romana is Latin for Roman peace. It talks about the time within the Roman Empire where Rome had established its dominance all over the region and there was a time of unprecedented peace. There was no war because uh, Rome was the dominant um, military figure. Uh, all of the Rome's enemies were vanquished and there was a time of peace. And um, th it was known as Pax Romana. And see, the thing is, is that 
from generation to generation or, or from century to century, the, the baton has been passed to other civilizations which, in which they established peace in, in their region at the time. We also, there is also the known as uh, Pax Hispana during the reign of, of the Spanish in regard to the, how the Spanish held the balance of peace in the earth. And then there was Pax Britannica where the, the, under the British Empire where the British Empire held the balance of peace throughout the world. But it was in the aftermath of the Second World War where the baton was passed from the British Empire to America. And this is where we are now living in the time right now, known as Pax Americana, where America literally is the superpower. It's a superpower status. And America's Christian influence has brought stability and peace for the entire world. And yet the sobering reality is this. If America goes down, we all go down. So does the rest of us. And as Ronald Reagan aptly said, he said, if we lose our freedom here, there is no other place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. He said, this is the last stand on earth. You know what's also interesting too, I should add, and this is what I thought was really fascinating. This is what Karl Marx said. Karl Marx said this. He said, wipe North America from the map of the world and you will have anarchy, the complete decay of modern commerce and civilization. Now, Marx is not a prophet, okay? He's not inspired, but... He did have, I just thought it was interesting that he made that observation. Even back then, in the late 19th century, I thought is extraordinary. But I really do believe that what Ronald Reagan says is right. America is the last bastion of freedom upon the world. Now, where is the church in all this? The church in the West has lost its saltiness. Okay. Remember what Jesus said. He said in the last days, there will be a great falling away. There will be a great apostasy. Jesus also said this. He said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And for the most part, the church in the West has lost its saltiness. And as a result, is thrown out of society and is now being trampled underfoot. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Yeah. And Levin, Leonard Ravenhill said, the early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecutions. Today, the church is married to prosperity, personality, and popularity. Mm. Oh, boy. <laughs> mm. That is a bit of a, um, a reality check. But yeah. it's not all bad news. It's not all bad news. And this is what I really want to get to. Stephen Lawson said this. The church is generally strongest when her opposition is the greatest. Adversity revives the church yeah. while pro 
prosperity ruins her. And what I think is interesting, and I think I touched on this in my last podcast, but, you know, in the Roman Empire, when the church was at its absolute peak of persecution, where persecution was the most intense, the church was actually united. The church was in one voice and one heart. But when Constantine declared that Christianity was going to be the official religion of the Roman Empire, persecution stopped. And what happened after that was quite sad. There began splits. There began divisions. And before you knew it, there was all these different sects of, of, of churches and churches that were um, divided based on sometimes frivolous points of difference. But the point remains, what I believe will happen is that as we, become, uh, we enter into a period of persecution, I believe that this persecution will unite us once again. Of course, there's going to be a great falling away. Of course, there are going to be many who will fall away. But those who remain, the remnant of the church, I believe, persecution will unite this remnant of the church. Persecution will, will be the, the bonding agent that will bring the church back together to be in one voice and one heart once again. Also, too, I believe that the church will be entering into its most challenging period, but I also believe it's entering into its most fruitful period. And the growth of the gospel exploded in the time of the early church. And the question needs to be asked, well, what caused that? And the answer to that is persecution. Persecution was the catalyst for the explosion of evangelism in the first and second century. And as that was the case back then, I also believe that there will be an explosion of evangelism in the last century, in the century that we're living in now. Remember what Jesus said. He talked about in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, he talked about you'll be handed over and you'll be persecuted. You'll be hated by all people because of me. And then he says, but this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached unto all nations and then the end will come. Well, what was the catalyst for that? Well, exactly what Jesus spoke of before that, persecution. Persecution. Persecution will be the driver of that. And that's what, even though the persecution will be unpleasant, but it will cause the church to get onto the mission field and to take the gospel to ears that have never heard the gospel before. Mm. Now, here's the other good news thing. There are scores of Muslims are reporting of having dreams of Jesus. I think that's, that is so exciting. And, you know, what is interesting, and just the other day I launched my new website, which is called Khera Ista, which is actually Farsi for Why Jesus. And I have launched it. That's actually a part of a project called the Why Jesus Project. And there are three websites. There's Li uh, Matsayasu, which is Arabic for Why Jesus. That website is completely in Arabic, which reaches out to Sunni Muslims. Then I have another web website called um, uh, Kinapa Yisus, 
which is Indonesian for Why Jesus, and that website is completely in Indonesian. Now, those two websites, because they have been launched prior to Kera Issa, but the most popular page of those two websites, and this is amazing, right? Because I can I can see the analytics. I can see which page is getting the most traffic. So on the homepage, I ask this question and I say, are you having dreams about Jesus? If so, you're not alone. Here's what you need to know. And they click on the link that goes to this page that explains to them why they're having dreams about Jesus. That page is the most popular page on Lee Matsuyasu, the, the Arabic website, and on the Indonesian website, which I just think is just so amazing. It's just incredible. Mm. But there are reports of full-blown revival in Iran with many coming to faith as a result of Christian programs on satellite TV. Uh, in fact, a Christian aid group, International Christian Concern, have said it's likely that more Muslims are coming to Christ in Iran than any other place in the world. Wow. Now, you might remember earlier in my talk, I said that where Islam is growing in the majority of, of nations, Islam is growing. It, it's taking over these nations. But I said that there was an exception. The exception is the nation of Iran. Now, I did an interview with a man called Dr. Hormoz Shariat, who was regarded as the Billy Graham of Iran. And he said to me in the interview, he said, Daniel, he said, Iran is the only nation where Islam is in full retreat. Islam is in retreat hmm. and Christianity is on the offensive. Christianity is growing like it's growing like wildfire. In fact, the Alatollahs, the Iranian leadership are terrified. They are absolutely terrified because Islam is growing so quickly. So what can we do? Our situation is not hopeless. Although we may be witnessing the demise of the West, we are in a position where we can observe what is happening and not make the same mistakes. Now, remember what Jesus said, strengthen that which remains. We need to focus on what's in our world and to strengthen what remains. We need to encourage one another. We need to keep our focus on the Lord. Most importantly, we need to pray and turn to the God in repentance. Repentance is the key to turning away God's judgment. Secondly, even though Islam is a horrific, evil religion, we must never stop loving and praying for Muslims to come to faith in Christ. Yeah. This is so important because the Muslims are coming. They are coming whether we like it or not. Mm. But here's the thing. We need to have the attitude where we reach out to them and we love these people, that where we show Jesus to these people. And when they see Jesus and when they see the love that we show them and when they see the concept of forgiveness, which doesn't exist within Islam, it will melt their hearts and will turn them toward the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Yeah. Amen. So, Daniel, wow. could you let, close and let, let's pray for Muslims all over this world, those in our street, yeah. those who are our neighbours. They're not just the other side of the world. They're all around us. Um, the mosques are around us. This isn't just um, them advancing. It, it's an opportunity 
for us to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, even in our own cities. So yeah. could you finish by praying, please? Mm. Yes. So, Father, we pray that you give us the sense of urgency mm. and that you also give us boldness, just like the apostles prayed in the book of Acts. Lord, grant us boldness. Yeah. We pray for this boldness that we may take the gospel to places where we have previously feared to go to, where we have been intimidated, where we have been, I guess, shy and nervous, like we, we just don't have the courage to. But, Lord, I pray, give us courage and give us the wisdom. Give us the know-how. Help us to, to show us how we can use our gifts, how we can use our talents for the, the purpose of the gospel. Lord, you said, pray that workers may enter the harvest field. So, God, we pray, raise up harvest workers, raise up workers. Give us wisdom. Show us how we can reach these people. Lord, as it says in your word, work while you have daylight because night is coming when no man can work. Lord, in these last days, in these last hours in which we are living in, Help us to be productive. Help us to be obedient to fulfill that which you have called us to do. Mm. We want to be like that servant, the faithful servant, who when his master came out, found that he was ready and that he was busy doing the work of his master. Mm. Lord, help us to be faithful servants, Lord Jesus. And we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Daniel. We we appreciate you taking the time. I know it's getting late over there in Australia. Um, and there's so much that you said for, for us to think about. And there are, there are definitely things within that we could have deeper conversations about and explore more uh, in the future. So so thank you. And we look forward to having you back uh, next time. Thank you, Daniel. You're, thank you. You're very welcome. God bless. Thank you for listening to this episode. If it inspired you, please rate us and subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify or another podcast platform.